Welcome to the CNTN Spotlight Podcast. I'm Alicia Murdoch, Project Manager for the Canadian Nephrology Trials Network, or CNTN. This podcast was developed to share research innovation, information, and stories with the Canadian kidney community. CNTN is part of the Cancel of CKD Network, a patient-oriented research network supported in part by the Canadian Institutes of Health Research. In this episode, Dr. Stephanie Thompson from the University of Alberta talks about the challenges and lessons learned from her recent exercise trial. We hope you enjoy. First of all, thank you for lending me some of your time today to talk about your work. To start, can I ask you to give me a brief summary of the trial we're going to talk about today? Sure, and thank you for, for inviting me to talk about this trial. So the name of this trial was Physical Activity in uh, Renal Disease, and there was a CHR-funded trial with a specific question of trying to find out if um, exercise in aerobic-based intervention and specifically could reduce blood pressure in people with moderate to severe chronic kidney disease. And we measured uh, blood pressure with 24 hour ambulatory blood pressure monitoring. And, you know, we thought that this, you know, of the question of whether exercise would be an effective strategy for hypertension was important. Currently, it's a weak recommendation from Candigo, primarily just due to the lack of evidence uh, that, you know, blood pressure, that exercise could be used in this way. And, you know, arguably, we all sort of say, oh, exercise is good, everybody should be doing it, just recommend it. But our practice is not to prescribe exercise when we have somebody in the clinic with an unoptimal blood pressure. Our, our practice is to prescribe, uh, prescribe a medication. So this trial was really to try to see if it could be as effective as it has shown to be in the general population. So in general populations, exercise can reduce blood pressure by as much as six millimeters mercury in non-hypertensives and even a bit more uh, impressively in people who've got hypertension. So even up to 10 millimeters of mercury systolic. And we thought that this question was interesting as well because in people with CKDs, we know their blood pressures can be harder to control. And as you get more advanced, you accumulate salt and water and blood vessels become more stiff due to vascular calcification and perhaps those things wouldn't be as responsive to exercise. So uh, what we did is we randomized participants and I said moderate to severe CKD. So we defined that as an EGFR of uh, 15 to 44 and a systolic blood pressure greater than 120, just in keeping with the newer CADECO guidelines. And we uh, randomized them to either an aerobic based intervention that was prescribed based on um, cardiopulmonary exercise testing or usual care. And it was delivered over 24 weeks. We put the primary outcome of change in systolic blood pressure at eight weeks because we really want to minimize the effect of, of antihypertensive adjustments. So what we said is once you're in the trial, your, your antihypertensives cannot be adjusted. And we knew that we could ethically say that uh, for the first eight weeks, because that's what's recommended with a lot of lifestyle interventions that you can try that as long as the blood pressure is less than 160. So our primary outcome was at eight, but we followed people for 24. And we taught people in the intervention um, arm how to exercise. So we brought them into in-center sessions once a week. It was very much like a cardiac rehab model where they worked with a trainer um, to learn the exercises. And then the other two days of the week, they're supposed to exercise. They did that at home. And then after eight weeks, they went into this home phase where they're completely on their own. And we just phone them every two weeks to use motivational interviewing and to find check up on their adherence. 
And we measured other things as well. So we measured, as I said, their fitness. We measured their body composition with bioimpedance. We looked at other cardiovascular risk markers. Um, I don't want to spoil the, the end of the trial, but you know, COVID happened during the middle of this trial. So we only reached um, probably less than a third of our target recruitment. So we recruited and enrolled 44 and we were going for 130. And it was disappointing because at the time that we called it off, um, we had about 35 people just, you know, in the various stages of screening and already uh, passed the bulk of screening and interested to participate. But in any case, we randomized 44 people to either arm. They're mostly male, um, white males, mm -hmm. um, over 65, pretty representative of the Alberta CKD population. And we hit our GFR that we wanted to get to be, you know, severe to moderate. It was the median was 28 GFR, and the blood pressure at enrollment was about 130. Unfortunately, because it was underpowered, we didn't find any difference in the exercise group compared with usual care um, at the end of the eight weeks or the 24 weeks. We did find that we could improve people's fitness though over those eight weeks. So people did um, have a clinically meaningful improvement in their VO2. Objectively measured. There were a few other things, you know, um, that were interesting just signals. Um, the BMI did actually increase in the exercise group, which was, you know, gave us some pause. Uh, it could be bad, could be good. Um, but the bioimpedance showed that that trend was actually more towards fat-free mass. So that that was one potential um, signal of, of the uh, effect of the exercise intervention. So that was promising, but it was still quite disappointing that we didn't manage to accomplish what we set out to do to answer the question of whether this could be an effective treatment for hypertension in this uh, population. Yeah, I can imagine, especially since exercise is such a simple change, that having a trial showing positive results would have been beneficial. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. There are definitely these people who don't want other who want don't want another pill. Right. And, you know, and I think providers could feel better about pushing exercise first um, and knowing that it might work. So I think you touched on it a little bit in terms of COVID, but how is the experience of conducting this trial different than anticipated? Mm -hmm. Yes. So that was the big one. And I know a lot of people are in a similar boat with that in their research. Um, and so what we did there is we quickly pivoted and we finished up the people who are already in the trial with uh you know, dropping off ambulatory blood pressure monitoring. And we had to uh, eliminate some of the secondary outcomes in those people just so we could get some data on our primary. But, you know, aside from aside from that uh, disruption, you know, it was just very different than I had envisioned. Um, everybody, you know, in our renal program was very supportive of this study, but it really highlighted to me the lack of processes and support to recruit beyond what you can provide for your study. So for example, things like approaching patients in clinic, that was probably the most effective way to recruit rather than posters or relying on healthcare providers. But that was simply because it's not top of mind uh, when people would be checking into the clinic to mention, you know, are you interested in hearing about any trials? And so really that, that was unfortunate because people aren't going to look at posters, you know, they need to have people who they know and trust ask them and recommend them for studies. Right. And we're also busy. So I think, you know, it just really highlighted that there just needs to be somebody who's 
it's part of their job or um, a job to make studies in general aware to patients coming to our center. I mean, we're in an academic center. So that surprised me. Um, and I'm not alone there in terms of having identified that need in our program. I think the second thing was that was quite nice was I was really worried about the burden of testing for the participants and in particular doing a full metabolic heart. So, you know, with the face mask, like you've seen the hockey players running on the treadmills. And I thought that, you know, people would balk and they would be nervous, but actually it was, um, it was inspiring. It was inspiring to see people over the age of 65 who hadn't exercised, just do it and give her and uh, want to do better the next time. It was really, really, it was just really fantastic to see that everybody did it uh, three times for the study and uh, did their best. And, you know, it was, it was really nice to see. What were some of the other lessons that you learned during this and, and maybe how will this experience change how you plan or conduct other studies in the future? Yeah. So the biggest lesson I learned of things I can control, um, number one would be adherence. I mean, adherence in exercise trials is, is everybody's burden to try to ensure. And it's a tough one because you're trying to change behavior and it's complex. And when we looked at adherence in this study, what was interesting was that in both phases, the home, the home phases in the first part and the second part, adherence was completely bimodal. That is, there were people who did zero and there were people who did 90%. And it would be, it's, it's unfortunate we didn't have the power to really explore what type of people and what sort of determine those things at baseline because we did do some other self-efficacy measurements to start, self-efficacy for exercise to see if that predicted adherence, but we didn't see the point in taking that on given the low number in the study. But um, it does speak to the fact that there are these very individual characteristics likely that um, do influence adherence. What I do notice though, is that um, you have to have some structure. So adherence to the in-center sessions was 90%. Mm, wow. Yeah, really good. And you know, you wonder why that is. And I think it's because people knew there was accountability. You know, there's somebody waiting for them on the other end. And it was probably enjoyable. I mean, they went to a very nice facility, this nice cardiac rehab gym. They saw other people similar demographic, like not intimidating, older people uh, rehabilitating. And that sort of phenomenon, um, like it's called vicarious experience, where you see other people who you imagine to be like yourself doing similar things. And it does encourage you to then want to do the same. So I think that was really good having that peer atmosphere. There was a bit of a social atmosphere. Um, But then the home was still okay during phase one, but just still not as good as those in-center sessions. And then again, in phase two, adherence dropped further. It was still a bimodal pattern, but but the median sessions that were completed were overall lower. So, you know, going into this pandemic, you're like, well, now what can we do? Now we have to deliver, figure out how to deliver some exercise at home if we want to do these types of studies. There needs to be flexibility, there needs to be a remote component, but there also has to be accountability. So I think, you know, that would be the lesson that I would learn is even though you're going to like design something that is remote or virtual or try to go to a home phase, there's got to be accountability that's more than a phone call. Right. Because it's so easy to avoid a phone call. (laughs) What that is, I don't know. I really noticed, though, that the more strategies we use that include um, a social component, 
Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's the carrot. I think, I think you have to link it with something that's pleasurable. So to work that into a, a design of a, of a study would be, you know, quite feasible and easy to do. Um, I also think that maybe perhaps you can look at um, more adaptive trial designs um, where you are trying people in different arms to see who responds, right. maybe um, a more individualized approach and certainly more appropriate where you're trying to, to change behavior and so on. So that would be some of the things that I have learned. I also learned that stated preference is not always what it bears out to be. So early <laughs> on in yeah. Early on in the trial, the most common reason for people not participating was they had no way to get to the training center. And so they said, you know, if it was closer to home, I'd do it. And so what we did was we got everybody um, a free, they could get a free membership for six months to their local Y. And uh, nobody took it. Not one person took that option. And instead of coming to the hospital, they could go to their community. Why? So it was interesting. And maybe perhaps that was still too onerous, but I just thought it was interesting that not one person took that uh, opportunity. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Some of the reason maybe their peers, they may not want to go to a gym full of buff 20 year olds. They prefer to be in an environment with their peers and other people in similar health situations as it would seem less intimidating. I think so. And having somebody there to walk you through. And obviously that's not sustainable, but if we can somehow uh, duplicate some of those components um, and make them sustainable, that would be, uh, that would be ideal. So then what are going to be your next steps in this line of research? Yeah. So I I have learned a lot here. um, Most certainly I would say, and I think biggest thing is perseverance, of course, uh, not to be discouraged. But I think two lines of research, um, and they both involve more of a personalized approach to these questions. So number one, when you're thinking about, you know, does this work? So these are efficacy questions for trial design. And, you know, oftentimes we become very focused on generalizability. And I I think, you know, there's merit in that, but if, if the question is, does this work? That's the question you're trying to to serve. So um, in terms of internal validity, I think what I would try to do is identify the population that is the responder. So that involves taking a little bit of a step back and looking at how people respond to, to exercise in terms of their blood pressure, because there is evidence that your response after you exercise, so that post-exercise hypotension that happens as a natural phenomenon can be a predictor of whether you will respond in terms of longer-term blood pressure lowering effects of exercise. So perhaps, you know, showing that that works in this population, that that is the same relationship, um, and then looking to enroll those types of people in the trial who have the post-exercise like acute response to see if that's actually sustained and can improve long-term the blood pressure. So things like that. I mean, cause I think that it's a very, you know, like with any, all of these conditions, a very heterogeneous pathophysiology. And so perhaps I, being more precise about the population, um, it will make it more efficient. You won't need as many people would be the hope. And then also, as I spoke about earlier, just using more, um, novel trial designs. I I don't think that this 
one prescription for all. And we were fairly flexible. We said any kind of aerobic exercise, but still, I think there needs more, more structure with that flexibility. And I think you can deliver different things and try different things with different people. So, you know, whether that is doing an adaptive design and it's more sequential, or you're looking at just a more pragmatic design overall, I would probably take, take that approach. It, of course, depends what the precise question is, but I think... I really think that we need to be more focused and individualized in, in what we're trying to, to deliver for people, but also provide that structure. Yeah. More people are starting to embrace adaptive clinical trial design, and they may become more popular in the future. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And how that can look for exercise at home it will, be, uh, will be challenging, but I think it's also very exciting next phase of our of, of exercise research. Thanks again, Dr. Thompson, for talking about your trial with me today. And thanks to those listening. Please consider subscribing to this podcast and be sure to follow us on Twitter at CNTN underscore RCEN.